Good morning. Great to see you all, Sovereign Grace. Great to see so many of you here in the summer. If you're new to Sovereign Grace, welcome. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it'll be my privilege to preach the word this morning as we continue to make our way through the book of Psalms. Let's turn to Psalm 42. A little shorter this week, 11 verses, but there is plenty, more than plenty to unpack in this wonderful psalm. Psalm 42, verses 1 to 11. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, And of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us that you are good, and you do good. And sometimes it's the last thing we want to believe when we're suffering, when the darkness does not lift. So we pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to teach us your statutes, to help us delight in your law, that your spirit would be at work through your word, convicting us, encouraging us, So that we can say at the end of the day that it was good that we are afflicted. That we might learn your law. And we might know that your law is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Father, help us to rejoice in the finished work of Christ this morning as our only hope. No matter what darkness may come. May we be those that are filled with joy. Joy unspeakable because of what Christ has done for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the words depressed Christian. 
Does that sound strange to anyone? A little off, maybe? Maybe some of you think when you hear depressed Christian, you're like, wait a minute, that's an oxymoron, (laughs) right? Those things don't go together. Depressed and Christian, that's impossible. Christians can't be depressed because God's word says we are more than conquerors in Christ. That has to be true, right? Ephesians 1 says we have been given every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So how can Christians be depressed? Not only that, we are commanded, commanded to be joyful continually in 1 Thessalonians 5. Even when we go through trials and suffering of various kinds. So you see, Christians can't be depressed. Now there are some that might say, well, Christian depression can happen. But really, it's, it's something that's gone wrong. It's sinful. Right? If a Christian is depressed, something has been forgotten. Something's missing. Something in that Christian to-do list that we're supposed to do every day has been left out. We might come to somebody in depression and say, look, have you, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed your sin? Have you studied God's word? Have you checked your theology? Have you made sure you're on the right track? Have you claimed the promises? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you looked at all the blessings in your life? Come on. Blessings are everywhere. And really what we're saying in moments like that is, look, if you change, if you repent, if you just kind of fix what is lacking, then depression and despair will just kind of go away. Because the assumption is good Christians don't get depressed. Good Christians don't struggle with despair. It's not common and it's not normal. I'm sure many of you have heard these things. Maybe some of you have said these things before. It's amazing to me how moralistic we can become when we're despairing and how quickly we can sound like Job's counselors in moments like this, can't we? Not only as we try to help other people, but even as we try to preach truth to ourselves in moments of despair. But if we battle spiritual depression, if we battle despair long enough, either with ourselves or with other people, eventually we learn that good behavior, good morals, good theology doesn't necessarily change circumstances. Right hopes don't often lead to uplifted hearts and peace in our soul. See, the reality in a fallen world is that all Christians, please hear me here, all Christians will struggle at one point or another, with seasons of despair and doubt and depression. Maybe longer, maybe shorter for various people, but it's all over the Bible. It's all over church history. Some of the greatest theologians that we love to read struggled with deep seasons of depression. And even if nobody in the church wants to talk about it, God does. And we know that because he gave us Psalm 42. This is a psalm to help us battle spiritual dryness, spiritual despair and depression in a way that honors him. And we know that's what it's for because God gave us his purpose right there in the superscript. Look at the superscript with me. Superscript says, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. That probably already seems strange because David didn't write the psalm. The sons of Korah, one of them wrote this psalm. 
Now, you might remember a couple weeks back we talked about these guys. We're going to be talking about them a lot more because they wrote the next set of Psalms we're studying. But the sons of Korah essentially were Levite priests who David put in charge of the worship at the tabernacle. They were the ones leading the people to God. They were the ones leading music. Essentially, they were the choir masters. So every time you see a psalm addressed to the choir masters, that's pretty much the sons of Korah once David became king. Now the question is, why would the music leaders in the church write a psalm about spiritual depression? That's not making the top 100 of any chart. Why would anybody write that? Well, it says right there, because it's a masculine. Clears it right up, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Masculine, we don't really even know what that means. It's transliterated, but it does come from a Hebrew word. It probably was more of a lyrical notation, but it comes from the Hebrew word that means instruction. That means training, training in wisdom. So do you see what God has given us in this psalm? He's given us a song that we sing together regularly in corporate worship, and we sing it so that we can learn, that we can be instructed on how to handle despair and difficulty in a way that honors the Lord. Really, this psalm is meant to answer one question. It's one question that we probably have asked ourselves already and will ask ourselves again. How can we, as individuals, as a church, how can we glorify God in our season of depression and despair? How can we honor the Lord in the midst of, of darkness and difficulty and hopelessness? That's the question we're answering this morning. The answer comes in three parts. First, we need to understand the condition of spiritual depression. Then secondly, identify the common causes of it. And then lastly, most importantly, we need to hope in Christ. So understanding the condition, identify the common causes, and hope in Christ. Now you might have noticed already this psalm feels very sporadic. The psalmist is in turmoil in his soul, and it comes out in his writing. He jumps around all the time. And so he'll get one idea in verse 1 and jump all the way down to verse 7 and pick it up again. So we will jump around a little bit as we go through this psalm to answer that question. So first, we will start in verse 1 as we understand the condition. And the psalmist gives us a picture, a metaphor, in verse 1. And then he kind of explains it in verse 2. Look at verse 1 with me. As a deer pants... For flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, at first, some of you might think, well, ah, that's cute. Such an endearing image. The psalmist, he thirsts for God. He thirsts for God like little Bambi, you know, wants water. That's not what's going on here. Not in the slightest. Actually, many of you might know this, but I didn't. Deer don't pant. Almost ever. The reason why they don't pant is because if they're panting, they're desperately searching for water and they're dying of thirst. So this is not a cute, encouraging little picture of, oh, the psalmist really loves God. No, the psalmist is dying to find God, desperately searching for God as a deer is searching for water when his death is just moments away. And the psalmist say, I can't find God anywhere. I'm desperate for him. I need him, but he's gone from me. That's why in verse 2 he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I know God is out there. He's living. He's active. But he feels so distant from me. 
I don't feel his presence anymore. I don't see the evidence of his work around me. His covenant faithfulness is just not showing up in my life. No matter where I go, no matter what I do, I can't find God. He's not there. He even begs at the end of verse 2. He says, when, when shall I come and appear before God? Literally in Hebrew there, the word has to do with God's face. You could, I think, better translate this. When shall I come and see the face of God? You see what the psalmist is desperate for? It's almost as if he's desperate to see the Aaronic blessing in his life. When will the Lord bless me and keep me once again? When will the Lord make his face to shine upon me and be gracious to me because he feels like he's absent? When will the Lord lift up his countenance upon me and give me peace? Oh, he still believes God is everywhere. God is living and active. But the psalmist here has lost this kind of relational experience and comfort of God. The promises of God that have comforted him for so long don't seem true anymore. They're just not cutting it anymore. He feels cut off from God. Cut off from God's people, like he's unclean, like he's under discipline or judgment of God, like God has literally forgot him. In fact, he says that. Look at verse 9. I say to God, now pay attention to this. This is so sad. I say to God, my rock, my foundation, the one I can depend on no matter what. What has the rock done? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten? Even the one that I knew I can always depend on seems nowhere to be found. Psalmist is desperate, despairing. We probably see that most clearly in that repeated refrain that is in verse 5, verse 11. Even next chapter, we'll talk about that as these two psalms are really joined together in theme. But look at verse 5 with me. Listen to what the psalmist says. Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul. Why are you bowed down? The word there in some translations, I'm not sure if it's any of yours, but literally could be translated depressed. Maybe you didn't know depressed was in the Bible. There you go. This is probably the word, if there was going to be a word, that would be translated to depressed. The idea is a heavy, weighty burden, an overwhelming burden on someone's heart that leads them to despair. The picture here is someone whose head has dropped in hopelessness. You know, I think if you're an athlete or if you watch sports often, you might actually understand this metaphor pretty well. If you're on a team and you make an error or the other team pulls ahead for some reason and you're losing now, what usually happens? Your head drops. Your heads drop. And actually, sometimes announcers will say this, say, oh, it doesn't look good. Their heads have dropped. Their eyes are down. Looks like they're not coming back from this one. They'll say that. And a good coach at that moment should say, guys, keep your head up. Keep your head up. The game is not over. The psalmist here, he's despairing. He's lost all sense of God. His spirit is broken to the point that he thinks, this is over. I am done. I am never going to enjoy God again. My whole soul and body is cast down before God, bowed down in turmoil. That's what the next part of the verse says. Why are you cast down, verse 5, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil, Within me. That turmoil is actually a great translation. I know we, we've been bagging on the ESV a lot for their translation issues, but turmoil is a really good choice. 
This word means chaos. It's a loud noise or, or clamor. The same word is used just a few psalms later, Psalm 46, to describe a roaring, raging ocean. Constantly in turmoil. And that's the idea here. The psalmist is saying, that's my heart. Like a roaring, raging sea pulled in a thousand different directions with no relief and no change. I feel like I'm being undone from the inside out. He continues the water imagery. Look down at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And it changes the metaphor a little bit. He's saying, no, it's not like I'm in a lifeboat in the ocean, just kind of floating along, being tossed to and fro in the sea. That's what my heart's doing to me. He's saying, no, I am drowning. I am under the water, dying for breath. And every time I come up and think there's going to be some relief, some breath of air, I get hit with a wave and pushed right under again. It's just unceasing despair and anguish. Can you relate to this? I know it may not be to this extreme, but can you relate to this description of despair, unceasing chaos, and hopelessness, the feeling of being cut off from God, where God doesn't seem present or caring for you anymore, and you feel like you're under judgment, but you have no clue why? I think most of us can relate to this at one time or another, or most of us know people in this church maybe that are going through this at this very moment. Like I said before, we all deal with seasons like this, which is why we need to understand this condition. And then what? Well, once we understand the condition, then like a good doctor, he begins to diagnose this condition. He starts to ask questions so he can identify the common causes, and that's what he does here next. Identify the common causes. Now, before we get to the verses, please note, I said common, common causes. I didn't say comprehensive causes. The psalmist isn't listing out here every cause for depression. This is not like a clinical list that a doctor would refer to here. That's not what's going on here. We actually know elsewhere in Scripture there are other causes, spiritual causes even, for depression. Satan, for example, is a cause of depression. We see that in the book of Job, don't we? As Satan tests and and really torments Job, pushing him to the edge, pushing him to despair. We know that sin can cause depression and despair. Our own foolishness. We probably know that by experience, don't we? But we also see that in David repeatedly through the Psalms. We saw that a couple weeks ago in Psalm 38. We'll see it again in Psalm 51 as he's confessing his sin, repenting of his sins with Bathsheba against the nation and against his God. We see it with Jonah at the end of the book of Jonah who is despairing even unto death. Why? Because those rotten Ninevites repented. And his soul is so hardened to God and so hardened towards them that he would rather go into despair than rejoice in God giving grace to sinful people. But here's the thing. Satan and sin don't seem to be the cause of the depression for the psalmist here. Satan and sin aren't mentioned. They're not alluded to anywhere in this psalm. But there is one clear and primary spiritual cause in this psalm. And it's a cause that we often overlook when we're in despair, even though it shouldn't surprise us. 
Look again at verse 7 with me, and this time pay attention to the pronouns in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Whose waves are these? Whose waterfall is this? It's God. These are his flood of depression and despair. You see, God is the primary cause of depression, of all depression and despair, because God is the primary cause of all things in this world. As Lord and creator of this universe, as sovereign sustainer of this universe, he is the primary cause. Now that might sound really alarming to some of you and think, oh my gosh, that's terrible news. Does that mean that God is evil? Is God the author of sin? Are we being pulled into despair, into depression against our will? Is God torturing us? What's going on? No, what the Bible says all over the place, everywhere else, is that no, God is good. He is holy and perfectly righteous. And we still are very much responsible for our choices and very sinful as well. But just as God allowed Satan to bring despair upon Job, God being the primary cause of Job's despair, Satan being the secondary cause of Job's despair, God uses secondary causes in this fallen world to bring despair and difficulty into our life. And if you think about it that way, it's actually really good news. Because that means our despair, our depression isn't random. It's not trivial. It's not useless. It's given to us by a good God who loves us and wants to use that to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, his son. Now look, I'm not trying to deny the pain and the struggle of depression and despair that you've gone through. Many of you have gone through. But I am trying to get you to see it as the skillful cuts of a wise surgeon trying to remove the cancer from within our heart. It's not the cuts of a madman or a crazy man trying to harm us. It's the cuts of a good and perfect God. Oh, we need to get this. We need to remember this. Because our first temptation in suffering is to think, God's not in this. God has no part in this. He's not in control. This is just overlooked. He is gone. But God is the primary and ultimate cause to our spiritual dryness. But what does God use for secondary causes then? What kind of things does God use to bring these into our life? Well, the psalmist actually helps us there too. Look at verse 3. He talks about physical causes. Verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. I hope you can see what the psalmist is saying here. It's a little subtle, but he's saying, I'm crying day and night. So if I'm crying, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not sleeping. Day and night, right? I'm just crying. And my tears are my food, which means I'm not doing what? I'm not eating. I have no appetite. It's all gone for me. All I have is my despair. And my body is wasting away. Now look, if this was your friend, your family member, what would you say to a person like this? Wouldn't any reasonable person say, you need to see a doctor? There is something physically wrong with you. Oh, sure, there's, there's probably spiritual issues too, but we have to deal with the physical if we're ever going to get to the spiritual. 
And that's a really important distinction we need to make. Depression often hits us both physically and spiritually. Because God made us body and soul, right? Whatever we do in our body affects our soul. And whatever we do in our soul affects our body. And we can't always trace out which one's leading to what or how they're connected. But we can't. We can't divide them. We can't be dualistic and say the soul and the body don't affect each other at all. There are some Christians, actually many Christians, that say, look, depression is just a spiritual issue. It's just a moral issue. That's all it really is. It doesn't affect you physically at all. That's just a myth. But we know that if you don't deal with your physical needs, if you're not eating, if you're not sleeping, if sometimes you're not even getting helpful medication to help you with your symptoms, you'll never be able to deal with your sinful heart, with the spiritual issues that come. And we can't swing the other way and say, oh, just depression is only physical. It's all physical. There's no moral, there's no spiritual problem at all. It's all biology. It's just brain chemistry. It's just genetic predisposition. That's all it really is. Just fix the physical problems, throw some pills at it, point to the person that you want to blame, and then get on with it. That's the way our world handles depression, isn't it? Often. And we can see what a mess that is. God has made us both body and soul, which means depression has spiritual and physical causes, and we need to be careful and wise in how we delineate what causes what. And that's why we need the church, by the way, to help us walk through those things. Now, what's the second cause of these depressions and discernment that he's going to say? Secondly, it's circumstantial causes. Circumstantial causes. And this might be the main cause of his depression and difficulty in this world. The psalmist is actually cut off from corporate worship. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4. These things I remember. So he's looking back now. As I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now we need to remember, this is a Levite. This is a son of Korah. This is the choir master here. This will be the one leading the people to the tabernacle. They sing the songs of ascents on the way. He will be the one ushering people into the very presence of God in a way through his ministry. Before the very face of God. The things he begged for in verse 2. But for some reason, this is a distant memory. We see why in verse 6. Verse 6 says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember. I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. See, for some reason, this son of Korah is in exile. Jordan is far north of Israel, up in the mountain area there. We don't really know where exactly he is, but it doesn't really matter. He's not in Jerusalem. That's his problem. We don't know if he was there because he's a prisoner. He's been pulled into exile. He moved there. He's doing business. Whatever it is, he has been cut off from public worship, cut off from the means of grace, being with God's people. And what blows me away here is the psalmist doesn't ask God for some private worship experience. He doesn't ask God for some private sign or some private miracle that would show God's presence. I know we want to run there sometimes. God, I need you to show that you're real right now. 
I need you to show me that you're with me, that you care about me. So write my name in the, the sky. Give me a verse. Heal me. Do something so I know that you're with me. The psalmist isn't doing that. He's looking back on corporate worship, longing to be with the saints, hoping one day he will be with them again. Longing to sing praises to God with them. Longing to pray with them, to fellowship with them. Be encouraged by how God is at work among them. To take part in the sacrifices and the ceremonies. These sacramental procedures that help him feel the nearness of God and help him to fight his depression. He's longing for that. But he's far from home. And to top it all off, he's being taunted. That's the other circumstance. He's being taunted and slandered while he's in exile. Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? the same taunt we heard in verse 3, isn't it? Where is your God? And this is the worst taunt when you're despairing because this is so easy to believe, isn't it? This is supposed to be my God, the God of my fathers, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. Where is he? Doesn't he care for me? Doesn't he know that I have a need? Doesn't he know that I need him? Why won't he draw near to me? He's abandoned me. You know, there's so much in this section that we can apply in so many different ways. Struggled to actually think of how to speak about it, but I really, really want to push on corporate worship for a second. Because it's so important. I, please, don't underestimate this time every single week. Please realize how important this time is for both you and your family every single week. Oh, I know we need rest. I know we need vacation. I know we need family time. I know our kids need athletic competitions so they can get scholarships. Those are all good things. Don't minimize those things. Carve out time for those things. Please hear me. None of them, none of them even come close to the importance of corporate worship. Not even in the same ballpark, if we want to keep the analogy going. Because God has designed every aspect of the service. He's commanded these things so that we can persevere in faith. So that we can be sanctified through the Sabbaths as he promised in Exodus. That's what God wants to do here. From the singing to the praying to the preaching and the sacraments, it's all meant to help us grow in grace. And you know the first thing that we want to do when the darkness hit is what? Pull away. Pull away. We don't want to have to lift our head to talk to people. We don't want to have to hear the word that reminds us of things that we think are not true. We separate ourselves from God. We put ourselves into exile and we cut ourselves off from the very thing that will help us. From the grace God offers us that will truly sanctify us. Sinclair Ferguson likens it to a coal that's being plucked from a fire. We get this analogy, right? You go camping. You pull a coal out of the fire, and what happens at first? It's glowing red, isn't it? Glowing red, hot, and you can't touch it. You put it off to the side. Eventually, what happens? It begins to fade. And eventually, it will completely go out. 
This is what happens to believers when they're pulled from corporate worship. We pull away from corporate worship and depression and despair gets worse. It won't be long before we begin to believe the lies of our enemies. Where is your God? He's completely abandoned you. You know, I'm mindful as I say these things. We have many saints, a handful of saints in this church who can't be at corporate worship regularly. I'm not saying there's no reason to miss corporate worship. There are some that can't be here because of illness, because of job situations. Think of our missionaries Even in a place trying to preach the gospel in an unknown nation, a place that doesn't know Christ, they're separated from corporate worship. Like the psalmist here, these people are vulnerable to despair and depression and spiritual struggles. And they would give almost anything. I've talked to many of these people. They would give almost anything to sit next to you this morning. To sing the songs you're singing. To hear the word preached. To draw near to the Lord's table. And look, I'm not trying to guilt you into like you're taking their seat. I'm asking you, pray for these saints. Pray for these saints. Visit these saints as much as you possibly can when you're able. And celebrate when they're here. Celebrate and rejoice when they get to join us in corporate worship. And don't forget to remind them their only hope is Christ. Their only hope is Christ. And that's where the psalmist goes next and last. After he shows us how we understand this condition and identify the common causes, he shows us that our only hope is in Christ. Look at verse 5 with me again. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Wait a minute. You just said hope in Christ. He didn't say hope in Christ. He said, hope in God. How do we know he's actually hoping in Christ here? Well, keep reading. For I shall again praise him. That's the God he was just talking about, right? And look at what he calls him. My salvation and my God. You see what he's saying here? I know I will praise him. Who? The one who is my salvation and the one who is my God. How can that not be Christ? You see what the psalmist is saying here? He's saying that this is not the end for me, although it might feel like it. God has promised me and all of his saints a better ending, a glorious ending, not only free from despair, but free from sin. And and holy and righteous, we can praise God for all of eternity. And my God, my salvation will bring this to me. I know this because he's promised me. Genesis 3.15, he will send the Satan crusher to crush Satan's sin and death for good. He will send the son, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, that great victorious king, to conquer our sin and death, to free us from despair and even more importantly, from our sin, so that we can walk into the very presence of God before the face of God one day and praise God for all of eternity. And the amazing thing about the psalmist is he doesn't just tell us to hope in that Christ. He models that Christ in this psalm as a type of the one who would truly despair. You might not have noticed as we went through, but Jesus is the one who drew near to us when we were in exile. When we were far off, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus is the one to reveal the Father to us, to show us the very face of God. John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever's seen me 
has seen the Father. And Jesus is the one to live and die in our place, to free us from Satan's sin and death. He's the one that thirsted more than the psalmist, more than we would ever thirst as he bore the wrath of God that we deserved on the cross. He's the one that would cry out in despair, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While his enemies mocked him and laughed him and said essentially, Where is your God? And he felt the weight of depression. Yes, Jesus felt the weight of depression and despair on his very soul as he thought about bearing the wrath of God. He told his disciples, Matthew 26, 38, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. But God rose him from the dead, rose him from the pit of despair and death, exalted him in the heavens. And now we know, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. No depression, no despair can ever touch it because Jesus is rose from the dead. He's in heaven and our inheritance is with him in heaven. This is our hope. To hope in Christ. And if the psalmist can hope in Christ through these promises and through these types and shadows, how much more can we find hope in Christ now that Christ has come? Now that Christ rules and reigns on high. Now that Christ is our sympathetic high priest. He knows what we're going through. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is our hope. And I'm sure some of you are thinking here, yes, that's good news. It's great news, in fact. Just not for me. Can't see it. It's easier said than done to cling to that hope because all I see is darkness. How do I do this? How do I hold on to Jesus when I feel like he is so far from me? The psalmist actually helps us there too. He helps us all the way through. He actually gives us three things, I think, that will help us see how we can hope in Christ. The first is pretty obvious. Pray this hope. Pray this hope. The psalmist is pouring out himself to God, isn't he? Praying to God, pleading with God, lamenting to God. And you know what? The psalmist has every reason to run away. Every reason to despair. Every reason to doubt God. Every reason to say, you know what? My enemies are right. My God has abandoned me, so I'm going to abandon him. You know what? Those idolaters have the right idea. They seem to be able to manipulate their God into giving them what they want. Maybe I should try that for a little while. He doesn't do that, though. Again and again, he goes to God with questions, pouring out his soul, but he's pleading with God to defy his feelings, to defy his doubts and come through on his word. So he prays this hope. And secondly, he sings this hope. Look at verse 8. By day... The Lord commands his steadfast love and at night. And you know, 
And seasons of depression and darkness, night can usually be the toughest. You might be able to see the steadfast love during the day, but at night, look at what God has done. His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Even at night, even in the darkest seasons, the psalmist is still singing. Looking back on what he longs to have in corporate worship, he's still singing those songs he led the people in singing. Looking forward to Christ, he's still singing of his future hope. He continues to praise God even when he doesn't feel like it. Even when he's cut off from God. And he doesn't have any clue when he's going to be back with God's people. Brothers and sisters, please sing in your sorrows. At the deathbed to a friend or family member, sing praises to God. When you're overwhelmed at home, moms and your kids are going crazy and you're dying to be with adults and fellowship with people, sing praises to our God with your kids. When you're stressed out at work and your world has fallen apart, sing praises to God. And especially with the saints. Oh, we haven't been in exile forcibly yet. So draw near to God with the saints. I hope you know, when we sing these songs, these great songs, we don't just sing them because we believe them. We sing them in order to believe them, in order to keep believing them. We sing to find hope in Christ, not just because we already have the hope. We sing to cling to that hope. That's part of what worship is. It's a means of grace to sing the praises of God so that we can hope in Christ. I love what Amy Carmichael says. She says, I sing the doxology and I dismiss the devil. That's what music does. We sing the praises of God. So we pray this hope. We sing this hope. And lastly, we preach this hope. We preach this hope especially to ourselves. I hope you noticed the psalmist doing that. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. He wrote it based on this psalm. This psalm in Psalm 43, the one we're going to talk about next week. But in this book, he actually says something profound about the way that we need to preach to ourselves. Listen to what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That sentence will change your life right there, by the way. Stop listening to your sinful, deceiving heart and start talking to yourself. And he describes how. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you being depressed? You must turn to yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of murmuring on, about your depression in an unhappy way. Do you see what Lloyd Jones is telling us? There are times when we need to say to our souls, say to ourselves, shut up. I know it sounds weird, but there are times when you need to preach to yourself and tell your soul, shut up. That is a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Let's send it back. I am not abandoned by God. I haven't been abandoned by God. And I know I won't be abandoned by God because Christ is on the throne. Christ has died for me. So shut up, soul, and hope in Christ. Hope in Him. He is my hope. No matter how I feel, no matter the circumstances or what's going on around me, my hope is secure in Him. 
And if you can't do it to yourself, have somebody do it to you. My wife and I have gotten the habit over the years at times where we say, I'm struggling, preach truth to me. Preach truth to me. I need to hear it right now, and I can't seem to do it myself. Because we know that is our hope. It's the only hope we have. And it's the only hope we need. As that wonderful hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray. Father, you are so good to us that you draw near to us in our darkness, in our despair and struggle. You draw near to us. You walk us through the valley of the shadow of death because you are our good shepherd. And we know that's true because you sent your son, the true shepherd of the sheep, to live and die in our place so that we might rise from the dead, freed from sin, freed from despair, filled with joy for all of eternity. Father, help us to hope in Christ. Help us to hope in Christ like the psalmist here, and help us to help each other hope in Christ in moments of weakness and despair. We're thankful, Father, for your word and for the means you give us to fight despair. Help us attend to it as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.